Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are here today in our ongoing project, this year-long project, titled Women in Leadership. Today we have with us Renee Yandel. Renee is the Executive Director of the HIV Alliance in Eugene, Oregon. In the interest of full disclosure, I am on their board, and this is my second term of service on the board and uh, very fortunate to be able to participate with this organization in our geographical area and the work we do in the state of Oregon. And I'm going to begin by reading her bio. Renee Andell has been with the HIV Alliance since beginning as a volunteer in 1999. Prior to her appointment as executive director in 2015, Renee worked with the agency as program director, housing coordinator, client services director, and case manager. As program director, Renee oversaw, one, the development of an innovative dental program that now provides low-cost, comprehensive dental services to people living with AIDS in 21 counties in Oregon. Two, a groundbreaking pharmaceutical program for people living with HIV AIDS. And three, a hepatitis C prevention and care program in Lane County. In this position, Renee was also responsible for the education, prevention, and care programs, which made up roughly 90% of the agency's revenue, staff, and activities. Renee has been with the agency since it only served one county and played a key role in expanding the agency's care coordination and nursing case management program for people with living with HIV AIDS to 12 additional counties in Oregon. Renee, thank you. Welcome to Molina Leadership Solutions ongoing series titled Women in Leadership. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm really excited when I think about not only the work the, or the agency is doing, not only the work in regards to the types of clients, the amount of clients, the, the breadth and the broad scope of services, but your personal leadership story, your personal leadership journey that began in 1999 as a volunteer, and here you are, our executive director, <laughs> and what a journey. Let's, let's go back in time a little bit, if you don't mind. Let's go back to 1999, what you were thinking. Why was it important to you to start volunteering with the HIV Alliance? Well, back in 1999, I was a student, and I was just um, I was just coming through a time in my life where addiction was playing a very primary role for me, and seeing the impact in people's lives of of what that what that can be like, and seeing how the system was or wasn't working for people who were dealing with those issues. And I had decided to go back to school and was uh, you know uh, trying to get my life back on track, so to speak. And I was in a class and someone came to talk about HIV Alliance and they taught, they spoke about, um, you know, the, the philosophies of the organization and this philosophy of meeting people where they're at and harm reduction. And um, it really struck a chord with me because I felt like that was something that was really missing in our system was this, this really, you know, a focus on accepting people where they are and really valuing how they want to work on their recovery or their health and empowering people to do that. And so I uh, wanted to be a volunteer. And so I signed up. I was actually the very first syringe exchange intern ever from Lane Community College at that time. And then I transferred to U of O 
And there again, I was the very first syringe exchange intern, which has um, uh, turned into sort of a, a you know, um, a long now relationship in history with, with U of O. Every year we have U of O students who help us in our syringe exchange as interns. So uh, I'm proud to have been the first, but that, that's what was going on for me back then. Now, syringe exchange is a dynamic program within the Alliance itself. And one of the areas of service we provide to those struggling with addiction, not just here in Lane County, but in the 20 counties that the HIV Alliance has influence and service and participation in. Up to this point, I know we're well over a million exchanges already this year. Mm -hmm. Do you have a more definitive number? Uh, we, we are over a million syringes discarded. So it is just about 1,200,000 is where is what we what we think it'll be this year. And um, and that is operating in multiple counties. And we serve just about 3,500 right around there um, individuals through the program. And a lot of those folks exchange for others. So the scope, you know, the actual number of community members we reach is even greater than that. Renee, why is you know, there's feelings, lots of feelings about needle exchange. Why are you going to give, you know, needles to drug addicts? Well, let's talk about that. Why is that important? Well, I mean, first, in a very, you know, um, in a very direct way, it interrupts the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. So it just, it just simply prevents the spread of very costly and devastating infections. So that, and it is very efficient at doing that. So um, that's that's the one thing. The second piece about syringe exchange is that um, it's just a really incredible way to build rapport and trust with a population of people who um, who are you know quite marginalized and and sometimes um, not well served by the systems that we have in place. And that can be because of real or perceived stigma, because of discrimination they felt. Um, because of burned bridges, just a variety of things that can be going on for people. And so that that's really what, you know, syringe exchange is for me as a way to connect people to a healthier um, life and services that they need. When I was a child, I was nine or 10 when my oldest brother has since passed away from cancer. He was an intravenous drug user at that time, re really battling with drug addiction. And he got hepatitis from shooting up uh, with a dirty needle and he barely survived that and so I for one have seen that up close and personal and understand the value addiction is addiction and if, if someone has never been through the addiction cycle the addiction process the recovery process it you cannot understand it it's easy to sit back and say well you should have just made a different choice until that beast is on your back yeah. And so I watched as my brother barely survived that and how that kind of exchange process back in that, that era of time might have made a difference. Who, when, where did this concept of needle, you're the first intern of the needle exchange program. Who thought of it? Was it a national model? Uh, why did this become important to the HIV Alliance at that initiation point? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it was something that was happening nationally and internationally too, and being recognized in the HIV world as a way that we could slow the spread of HIV. Um, and so a group of individuals came together here in Eugene, and this included law, our local law enforcement, so folks from EPD, folks from the city, Peace Health was an um, uh, important partner in the project. 
And um, they developed a plan to launch that, you know, there were folks from Whitebird, but they developed a plan to launch the syringe exchange here um, in, in Lane County. And it, it had really just started maybe two years before I came on as an intern. So it was a very new program um, for us here. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what was going on at the time. The other thing I did, um, when I was at that in an intern, I worked, um, in, we had a kitchen at the time and we served meals to people living with HIV. And, uh, these were daily people could come and get a meal and, um, visit with other people living with HIV. And it was really meant to combat stigma, but also address food insecurity for people. And my role in that was really, you know, serve the meals, of course, but also hang out with the clients and chat and just kind of socialize. And they, of course, wanted to tell me all their stories. And the stories that I heard from those folks at that time, they were incredible stories. And, you know, I come from a very big and strong family. And in my family, if, if you need something, family members will step up to help you. That, that's the norm and the expectation. And these folks shared with me, you know, painful stories of their families abandoning them, you know, losing their jobs, losing their loved ones. Uh, some people lost literally tens and tens of people through the course of, of you know, the HIV epidemic. And their resilience was um, incredible and inspiring to me as a young person setting out in this work. And um, and many of them themselves had battled with addiction um, as well. And you know they could see the value in syringe exchange and how it could have changed their lives. Um, so, yeah. Why are you not afraid to be around people who are, have been diagnosed with the HIV or are experiencing full-blown AIDS? Well, it is, uh, you know, you can only get HIV certain ways and I'm not doing any of those things at work. So, um, so there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of, you know, working with, um, living with, socializing with any of those things with people living with HIV. And I, and I've known that, you know, I knew that from the beginning, I understood the science of, you know, I'm not a scientist, but it's easy to understand how HIV is transmitted. And I knew that that wasn't a risk for me, um, you know, as a new mom at, when I worked at HIV Alliance, my first son was born in 2002. So just a few years, you know, after that, and, um, you know, I brought him to work with me and he was with me. Both of my sons were with me in the office, you know, for a year and, um, they were able to get to know our clients, our clients living with HIV are my coworkers and, I never, you know, I knew that none of that was a risk to me or my family. So for those that are watching this and will watch this, not only later today, but in the weeks to come, there really is no reason for them to be afraid of transmission just through the course of uh, daily interaction or if they know someone or meet someone with HIV. Just because a person have HIV, has been tested positive for HIV does not mean that they have AIDS, correct? That's true also, yeah, but, and there is no, I mean, I think that's a, you know, such an important point and there's still misconceptions out there about HIV, but there is no risk um, of HIV that way. You can get HIV through very specific things, you know, having unprotected sex, sharing injection um, drug equipment. I mean, you can't get HIV um, from being close to someone or hugging someone. Now, you said you were a student at the time when you interned there. Were you a student at the U of O, Lane Community College? I started at Lane Community College and I transferred to the Family and Human Service Program at U of O. 
And so do you completed your bachelor's, master's? I completed my bachelor's degree and um, I was a little bit of an older student. Like I said, I had a, a bit of a different path in my early 20s and, and um, school wasn't a part of that. But um, yeah, I was 26 when I graduated from U of O and, um, and, and that was actually the year that my son was born too. So it was a very busy year for me. You know, <clears throat> The work that the HIV Alliance does, and I remember I was back on the board at that time when we were only in Lane County, and to see what it has expanded to, to see the amount of employees, to see the amount of served, uh, the clientele that are served, in the amount of services that are now provided with the clinic and prep and all of these things. Let's kind of, for the sake of the audience, Talk a little bit about the development, how it began to expand, because this is part of the leadership journey, your leadership mm -hmm. journey, yeah. what you viewed, how you participated, those board members that came in and out, employees that came in and out, building this big picture of service. Let's let's go back in time a little bit and give us a, a better understanding of that timeline. Sure. Well, you know, we were going through a hard time economically in Oregon, and some of the public health departments were... Um, becoming overwhelmed and understaffed and underfunded and unable to continue to provide uh, HIV services. And that was kind of the model. So HIV Alliance was unique. There were many public health departments delivering HIV services. And as an organization, we were unique um, in that we were a private nonprofit. So as the, the public health departments became more overwhelmed by the care that needed to be delivered, the complexity of what needed to be um, delivered for HIV case management, and and really, you know, HIV care has always been about, under the Ryan White Care Act, it has always been about the whole person, you know, so looking at what we now call social determinants of health, we've always known that a person cannot adhere to HIV medications if they don't have a home, and they don't have social support, and they don't have enough food or mental health services. So that's always been a part of what we've done um, in HIV care. And that is, you know, somewhat beyond the role of, of public health in some ways. And at the time was taxing. So the public health departments were unable to continue and they approached the state who then approached HIV Alliance about helping to develop a regional model of care for people. And so we did, we participated in a year long project and um, through that project identified a way that we could develop a, a regional model. And, and then we set about doing that. And we added, you know, one county at a time and we learned from each county that we added. And as we added those counties in HIV care, it became obvious to us that, you know, what we had always depended on in HIV Alliance was this three-pronged approach, you know, prevention, education, and care. And here we were setting about moving into these counties to deliver care, but not prevention and education. And it was quickly obvious to us that prevention and education were greatly lacking in those places. Um, and so the board then, after, after several years of expansion in the care realm, the board then underwent a process of um, just kind of looking at the gaps in services for the people that we serve. And through that planning process, we recognized that HIV prevention, in fact, is not that much different than HIV care in that it's really a whole person's life that comes to play in an HIV infection. You know, is the person's um, mental health and physical well-being being taken care of? And when people are stable and supported, uh, they are going to engage in less risky 
risky behavior. That's not everyone, you know, but that that's for a lot of folks. So the board set about the process of expanding the way we do HIV prevention. And that really led us to this clinical care and behavioral health model and the use of peers um, and expansion of syringe exchange and harm reduction services. Um, so that's really kind of a summary of how we got there. And there were so many people and organizations throughout the years that I've been there, and I, that's you know almost 20 years, um, who helped us along this along this path, so. So you said it was a year long project in coordination with the state of Oregon? Mm-hmm, yes, yeah. So now we're in this time of pandemic and I have, I over the years I had heard the name Oregon Health Authority. Mm -hmm. I never knew what it was. I mean, you, you kind of have this idea of, oh, they're the people that make sure you get your shots or something like that. <laughs> and now you realize the sheer impact that they play on overall public health and the role that they play in these type of issues. So when you say the state, was it was it Oregon Health Authority? Was it the county health authority? Who were some of these organizations that were participating with yeah. HIV Alliance to roll this model out? Mm -hmm. Well, it was both really. So the Oregon Health Authority is the recipient of the Ryan White um, HIV care grant in Oregon. And that's there within the public health division, there is an HIV um, STI prevent, a care and prevention um, department program. And that's the, they are the recipient of the Ryan White grant. So they were leading the charge. But, you know, the thing I have really enjoyed about this expansion of work is that I've gotten to know the folks in the counties that we serve. So it was never um, that we were going to be able to do it without public health. Public health has a role to play. So each county's public health department participated with us as we expanded into those counties and still are important partners for us. And, um, and that's been incredible to get to know each different public health department and their community's focus and the players in those communities and the unique um, challenges and, and strengths that they bring to the work. So um, yeah, so both. So when the state and these other organizations approached the HIV Alliance, was the intent, <clears throat> excuse me, the state and intent of that time, let's create a statewide response or we have a problem, we're not really sure what to do, let's begin to study this and find a way to make an immediate impact. It was more the second. So we have a problem and the problem is the, the funding is not going up and the numbers of people that we need to serve are, and the counties are not, um, are not always able to continue to, every county cannot continue to do this as a standalone program. So what can we do um, to better serve people living with HIV. And, and that was really the goal. And the regional model came out of that. And we looked at lots of different, um, you know, ways of, of providing care. But. So with this series of women in leadership and this concept of leadership, this is a really unique presentation that I'm hearing. I, I had stepped down off the board when before this process started because I had lost my job, the housing market crashed and all of that. So I was already on to other things. So this is the first time I'm hearing the story and I'm very, <laughs> it's very enthralling to, to listen, Renee. Um, what kind of searches, national models, maybe even some international work, how did you you all as an organization, as the board, the state, however that came about, where did you go to and why did you look at particular models? 
Well, you know, they, we did look at a variety of models and I think, you know, we tried to look at models that were going to be applicable to Oregon, but also look at things that were outside the box for what Oregon, you know, did. We collected information from the participants, from, from participants or people living with HIV. So that was part of the process. We got information from staff and from um, providers who were delivering HIV care and what they thought they needed to do a better job. And then we brought in help. So the state brought in um, some national consultants to help us kind of work through this. And we convened a work group and we, um, you know, we broke off into sub work groups and we, we kind of just tackled it that way. And um, like I say, it was a year long process. I think something that was really important and has always been great about the HIV work in Oregon is that the voices of people who um, are served by the program, people impacted by the program, they are primary in all the planning processes. I mean, this is required somewhat at the federal level, but I think Oregon really um, genuinely does this. And so that planning process included, you know, people living with HIV from across the state who could share what their experience was like um, and what they needed too with the planning group. And I, I think that was a really important part of it. Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary to have those that are living with it be part of this very comprehensive effort? Well, I think anytime, you know, you're designing any program, <clears throat> you need to hear from the participants. I mean, the people utilizing the service are the reason that we are here. And we all can do even our best effort, you know, um, do the best we can to come up with something. And it may not be what people need. It may not be responsive to what they need. It may, we may not be looking at it through the lens that they are looking at it through or recognizing the barriers that they're, they're facing. So I think if you want to be successful in designing a program, expanding a program, I mean, really, it depends on hearing from the people who are going to utilize the program. That's just, to me, the difference between being successful or not being successful. I mean, maybe you'll get lucky, but most likely you'll miss something and it could be something critical. Um, so, and I, and I have seen that happen too, you know, where you charge forward, you design a program, you don't get the input you need and all good intentions, but you don't, you're not meeting the need for people. And then your program is, is, you know, not effective. So. I think that's really important that, as you said, you had to involve those that are, uh, directly affected with HIV in this process because you want you wanted to hear their voice their experiences for the design aspect the expansion pro aspect the utilization aspect so that there can be success and I wanted you to expand on that a little bit because I think sometimes when things are being constructed in whether theoretically or practically we can forget the end result the end user, excuse me, mm -hmm. and the results it might have on them and why it is vitally important to have them at the table so that uh, an accurate understanding yeah. and an accurate assessment can be made on those services. Yeah. What do you remember from that time, Renee? What were some of the things that those infected with HIV were saying about why these things, why their involvement was important, how these programs might affect them? Well, some of the things that were the most, um, you know, that stuck with me the most, and I've carried these things, you know, with me through my years of work here are one that the relationship with the people delivering the care to them was important. They wanted to feel safe and welcome and um, like we were a part of a team together helping them um, 
to access treatment. So that relationship was very important to people. In particular, you know, people living with HIV in rural areas talked about this. So that they don't have, you know, that they and still today I hear this, you know, that they don't feel comfortable sharing their HIV status with everyone in their community um, because it's a small community, say. And so the relationship with the HIV Alliance is very important to them because that's someone where they can they can talk about that openly. Um, so that piece was important. This, the second piece that we heard through this is please don't make it so unbelievably difficult for us to access services. So lot, you know, difficult process, difficult to understand how to get enrolled. Dif you know, there's a lot of challenges with HIV care because that our programs are funded at the federal level and there are federal requirements that we have to um, put in place. But beyond that, you know, we really have to ask ourselves, is that, could I navigate this on my own? You know, could an average person get through this process on their own without being frustrated? And, uh, you know, the answer so often is no, no, we've created a really difficult process here. So I think that that was really a part of that um, for them, that they value that relationship they have with their local public health department. And they wanted to keep that relationship piece and they wanted it to be, um, easily accessible, that a person newly diagnosed with HIV or new to Oregon should not have to navigate a difficult, onerous process um, to get to what they need. This is such a big picture. This is such a big effort. It's impressive as much as it is, can feel a little overwhelming hearing it for the first time, understanding the sheer scope of the work the sheer scope of the investigation process, the sheer scope of the building of the programs from the ground up, and why all of these considerations are absolutely fundamentally uh, required for uh, any program to have success. Let's talk a little bit, you know, as we do this, as I am leading this Women in Leadership series, I'm learning more and more from different women in leadership about rural challenges or challenges of rural communities. What are some of the challenges the HIV Alliance has discovered for those that deal with this uh, disease in rural communities that you think are important for us to know that, that have no exposure to that? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think so, you know, I mentioned one already, which is, you know, um, feeling unsure about sharing their HIV status, um, or even sometimes we hear from folks about, you know, who are part of the LGBTQ community that they don't, feel like in their rural community, there are LGBTQ organizations um, or, or places where they can, they, they can feel safe and welcome. So that's one piece. The second piece is, you know, I, I think one thing that has always stunned me about our clients living in rural areas is that, that they, you know, they depend on their medical care because they're living with HIV. This is a potentially deadly disease. They have to have access to medical care. That means regular visits. Uh, labs, going to the pharmacy every month. And in a lot of places where our clients live, there isn't anyone there to provide that. So they have to travel great distances. And I can remember once a story of a client of ours, a, a woman living on the coast, and she and her daughter were both living with HIV. Um, and they had to travel, the daughter had to take time off of school, and she had to request time off of work for them to travel. And it was like planes, trains, and automobiles. They had to take, um, you know, they took a train and a bus, and then we had to taxi pick them up and take them to the final destination. But that's what the trip was to the doctor for them. And um, it's incredible. 
<laughs> that they have to that they have to do that in some cases. Now telehealth, I think, and that's one thing about COVID that has made you know that's a huge improvement for people is the availability of telehealth. So, but there again, you see in rural areas the the infrastructure is not there. People don't have access all the time. They don't have consistent access. They don't have devices. They don't have minutes on their phones. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of challenges still um, with the telehealth project. Uh, so for, for people in rural areas. So I'd say those things, transportation, you know, access to um, internet and, and those kinds of things. Um, and then there's, you know, I think that there's a lot of strength in rural areas too, though. And that has been something that's really been inspiring to me that there's a, you know, there's a narrative out there um, you know, that HIV Alliance might not be welcome in a place like Roseburg or something. And, um, and that hasn't been our experience at all. I mean, we um, have great partners in, in that community and, and others across Oregon. So I think um, there is strength in those places and a desire to help each other. Um, and that's, that's definitely something that you can build on. It's, I'm thinking about the rural communities and not having medical care, access to medical care, in many cases not dental care either, mm -hmm. or having very small clinics with very limited capacity. And then you're right, they don't have public transportation. They, they may not have access to the internet. They may not have the resources to access the internet. Mm -hmm. And that can be very terrifying when you're dealing with a life-threatening yeah. illness. Mm -hmm. How is the HIV Alliance, what kind of services, I mean, you've just mentioned some of them, but what's the approach when you come into a rural community to engage local public health officials, local elected officials, maybe local clergy or otherwise, mm -hmm. to say, we're here to help, we're here to serve, what can we do to work together on this issue? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we so we go about this in in two ways when we when we do this work. So we uh, public health is always a good partner for us. So we start there and we ask them to help us understand the landscape and who are the partners, um, either those who will come easily to working with us or those who might who might be a little more hesitant to come to work with us. Um, and then we set about um, just making personal contacts with those folks and reaching out to people and talking about what we do and and how we might work together um, and asking for their opinion. What do they think that that their constituents need or their participants need? And how could HIV Alliance um, help with that? So it's really coming at it, you know, from a two way. We, here's what we would like to ask of you to help us do our work. But what can we do to help, you know, in your in your mission and your work? And where do we intersect? Um, and then also really hearing from the people living with HIV in those communities, too. Um, and that's an important part. So we will always convene, you know, groups to get to know the people living with HIV in that community and let them tell us about what's been working well, what hasn't been working well, you know, what are you worried about? HIV Alliance is going to be providing the service now. What do you think that's going to be like? What would you like us to know? And, um, I always enjoyed those meetings the, the most actually getting to know the potential participants of the program and hearing about, you know, what, what they need from us, because again, that's that's what we're there for. And uh, to do a good job with that, you have to hear from people. So 
that's kind of the, you know, that's the process. We always, you know, reach out to the, the hospital systems and law enforcement, and there are our usual partners. Um, but beyond that, you know, looking at faith-based communities and private business and um, other kinds of groups who might, who might participate. So. And I think that's very important, Renee, in, in this discussion today, that the HIV Alliance, when you go into community, you do have a lot of support, as you said, law enforcement, the hospital, faith-based, many different leaders and organizations coming together to say, we have some issues, we need to find some solutions, and people really do, you're finding genuinely, genuinely want to work together. Yes, yes, yeah, and the other nonprofits, I mean, I think, um, you know, these, the communities that we work in, there are other nonprofits, people who live in the community who have, you know, seen a need and formed an organization to try to meet that need, and, um, and those are great partners too, so. Now, how do you identify a rural community needs the services of the HIV Alliance? How does it, how does it come up? What assessments are made? How does that form when, when, before you decide, okay, now's the time to initiate uh, conversations going into this area? Yeah, uh, it's usually through some of the networks. So we are, you know, participate in a number of regional groups and networks. And, um, and then there's, of course, the data around HIV. So we're always looking at the data around HIV and HIV is a reportable disease. So the state knows a lot about what's happening around HIV infections. And um, so we're looking at the trends of those kinds of things, not just HIV, but also hep C, sexually transmitted infections. And then hearing from the need, from the community a need um, is usually how we, you know, how that starts. Okay. And that's crucial. Thank you for bringing that up. It's also, it's not just HIV, it's also hep C and uh, sexually transmitted diseases, many mm -hmm. other things that you, the HIV Alliance is helping local agencies try to control before there's some, some sort of uncontrollable outbreak. Yeah, I mean, one thing that has really helped us strengthen relationships throughout the region is our overdose prevention work. And that has come out of our um, syringe exchange and harm reduction. So we have worked with law enforcement organizations, faith-based organizations, people doing street outreach, just a number of groups across the region um, because uh, overdose has been, you know, a real issue for some of the rural communities that we serve, as, as it has been for, for, you know, Eugene as well. But um, that has allowed us, it gives you a way to talk about harm reduction. People can really understand saving a life. You know, if someone is overdosing and you can save a life, you give them a chance to access treatment and, and take a different path. And that's a good way to explain harm reduction to people. And from that place, they can understand other things like syringe exchange. So, you know, you might think it'd be the other way around, but sometimes we talk about overdose first and that gives us a way to talk about why syringe exchange is important. And um, that has allowed us to really strengthen the relationship with law enforcement across the region. I mean, I think a lot of the smaller law enforcement organizations, they want to, um, they want to do this. They want to give people another chance. And they don't have Narcan or Naloxone. They may not even have a medical director, you know, um, so that they can get Narcan or Naloxone, which is the drug that reverses overdose. So um, those relationships have been strengthened through this work together. We can help them, we can provide them with some supplies, some training and some support, and then they are the ones out there doing the work, so. Now, HIV Alliance 
also trains people in the use of Narcan. Mm -hmm. And just for those that are hearing who may not have heard about Narcan or what it does, can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's an it's a, it basically reverses an overdose. So you can administer it nasally. You can administer it through an intramuscular injection, and it gives the person who's overdosing some time so that you know the the effects of the drug are suppressed so that they can have some time to access emergency medical. So essentially, you administer the naloxone or Narcan. You call nine one one. Um, and we always train people on the Good Samaritan law so that they know that calling 911 is safe to do and that you're protected if you do that. Um, and that's a really important step because uh, the Narcan or Naloxone won't, won't stop the, the overdose permanently. So a person can go back into um, distress if you don't get them some help. So um, yeah, so that, that's essentially what it is. And it has, the, through some you know, legislative changes in Oregon, several years ago, we became able to distribute naloxone or Narcan to individuals. So it's unusual in that it's a, it's a prescription. It had been a prescription drug and um, it still is, but you can hold it. You don't use it on yourself. You use it on someone else. So that's, that's an unusual piece of it. Pharmacists can um, prescribe it. So you could go to your pharmacy. You could ask your pharmacist for it and they can prescribe it to you. So um, it, it's incredible. We just I was looking at our data for Eugene Springfield and just in the last two months, we've had 22 people come back and say, we used the Narcan that you gave us to reverse an overdose. So that, you know, that's pretty incredible. Potentially 22 lives saved just in Eugene Springfield in the last two months. So you mentioned the Good Samaritan law. What is that? The Good Samaritan law protects um, community members who are who are acting in good faith to try to help someone who's overdosing so that the, when the police come, they can't charge you with um, anything related to the overdose. So, and it, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's generally the sense of it. So, How many counties specifically, I know because I'm on the board, but I want people to hear you say it. How many counties specifically is the HIV Alliance providing some sort of service? Uh, it, it's upwards of 20 plus counties that we provide some service. So some programs like our prep navigation or our dental program, they cover multiple counties, you know, um, 20 plus counties. And then um, syringe exchange is in fewer counties. Care coordination is in 14 counties. So um, it varies by the program, but. I appreciate that. It does vary by the program because we're, we're learning and growing and evolving as an organization, trying to get services to some of these uh, counties and outlying areas. Now, where have you found the trends going? You know, what HIV Alliance does, we serve every county in the state of Oregon except five, and that's basically the Portrait Metroplex. They have their own organization there. The, the amount of counties is the size of Connecticut. <laughs> and I say we because I'm on the board and I'm part of the process and it's important to me. Um, what have you found as the trends, uh, you know, as far as public awareness, support? Are we getting better because of prevention and care and education or are we heading into a different kind of storm now? Uh, I mean, I think things are getting better. I'm an optimistic person. And, you know, I think through our work and our expansion, we have raised the awareness in many of the places where we um, 
have expanded services. And, I, and that really comes from a commitment from our staff and our board to really get out there and join groups and join coalitions and talk about what we do. And that, that has, I think, a big impact on raising the awareness um, about you know, the, the, the need for HIV prevention, the way that really HIV and hepatitis C and STIs are connected and, and how they are also connected to the opioid epidemic or um, homelessness or other you know, social issues that we're all, racism, um, the social issues that we're all facing right now, these things are all connected and we have to you know, stay focused on our mission, but we also can't silo ourselves. We have to be able to look beyond that and work together if we really want to make a change. And I think there's a growing awareness about that in a lot of ways. You know, HIV is one of them, but there's lots of ways in which people are really starting to see how things are connected. And that gives me some hope for the future that we'll, we'll be able to make a change. And I appreciate you saying that, Renee, because these things are connected and they are profound and they do have an impact one, one upon the other. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the role of the HIV Alliance and opioid addiction, the process of serving communities in that specific area. Mm -hmm. Sure. So one of the things that we, um, you know, as I said, we knew syringe exchange disrupts the spread of HIV and hep C. So we knew that was effective, but it's a very short interaction. You know, a person comes to syringe exchange, they're there for a couple of minutes, you're outside, it can be raining, it can be cold. People don't want to be there, you know, for an hour talking to you. And yet you hear a lot of need, you know, so you, we always ask people, are you interested in treatment? Often the answer is yes. But in the moment, it's difficult to connect people. So we knew there was something missing there. At the same time, we saw the numbers of participants coming to syringe exchange increasing. I mean, year after year, even in spots where we were not adding sites, the number of people coming was increasing. And, um, and then during COVID, it shot up dramatically. So, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot to be worried about. We knew people had, the people coming had a need that we weren't meeting. And we knew that there were more and more people coming. So our response to that was to think about how we could serve the population differently and really, you know, in a way use that value that HIV Alliance has about how important a person's experience is. Um, and so we launched a peer program and the peer program is, is funded by the Oregon Health Authority again um, in a different division, but, um, and it is to provide recovery peers to people who are not just utilizing our syringe exchange, but people who come to the emergency room with overdose or are being released from um, county or city jails who have opioid use or substance use disorder. And the peers can really are there to help people First of all, provide them with some harm reduction. So if they need syringe exchange or they need naloxone, um, but secondly, to help connect them to the services that they need and, and provide support and mentoring and coaching um, to the participants. And that is a new thing for us um, in terms of you know, working with our syringe exchange participants. Um, and we've also, you know, really through COVID also moved more into um, other additional services for people who are utilizing syringe exchange. So 60% of the people who utilize syringe exchange report that they have unstable housing. So um, we have really started to provide more of that type of assistance to people too. So emergency housing services to people, helping people get out of the cold, the rain, the wildfire smoke, you know, when that happened, providing um, emergency supplies like tents and flashlights, water, um, so those are all, all kind of things that we're working on right now. 
And briefly, what is naloxone for those that have not, have not heard that term before? Naloxone? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, that is the drug that reverses overdose. So it's an opioid antagonist. So it stops an opioid overdose. And so uh, regarding emergency housing services, this is one of the areas that I have uh, been on the board that I discover is very, very unique because you have to stop and take into consideration. Let me say for those that are listening, my oldest son is an intravenous drug user. He's been in and out of prison multiple times. He's been, a he's been unhoused multiple times. What is he doing right now? I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. I know he's using again. It is very difficult sometimes to understand what to do, how to help, what's the best healthy boundary, when to withdraw, because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And yet there's organizations like the HIV Alliance who are saying, we can help. We can help the one on the street, so to speak, that needs to get to this next place. And one of the things I really appreciate about our housing program, it is very, very unique learning the psychology, if that's the best way to present this, around those who are so scared to even apply mm -hmm. for a place to live because they have HIV or dealing with addiction, some of these other areas. What has the HIV Alliance learned about serving the population that we represent, so to speak, in this unique uh, place of just trying to get them to know that they, there may be hope and a place for you to find a place to live? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the biggest thing we've learned is that you have to really be invested in that building of trust and relationship with the person. And we're not their family. You know, we have to have boundaries around safety and things too. But um, a lot of folks come to us expecting um, to have to jump through hoops or be denied what they need um, and have had that experience. And that's true of not just people who inject drugs, but also, you know, folks in the LGBTQ community, in particular, the trans community. And we see a lot of homelessness there. So, um, or instability in housing, they're related to, you know, their, their um, similar issues. And so uh, I think that's, you know, that's something that we've really learned is that you, you have to um, really be invested in it. And it takes a lot of training and you have to really support your staff too, because you're asking your staff to, to every day deal with very difficult things. Um, and now they're not the ones that have to experience it like the clients, but they have to experience it in a secondary way. And, um, and that is challenging and difficult. And so I think really, you know, utilizing those trauma informed skills that we have in supporting our staff in a way that's trauma informed and understanding that they have to also take care of themselves. Um, and that means, you know, giving people time and space to take care of themselves, having policies that allow that and um, providing good health insurance and lots of other things that you don't think about when you think about how do you serve clients, but it's all related. Um, so that, I think those are the things we've learned among, among many, many other things, you know, but yeah. Well, that's a great segue into the area I wanted to go into next. Training up staff, preparing staff, maintaining staff mm -hmm. in an area with the, the clientele, that the HIV Alliance serves, which has and carries real stigma 
-hmm. What are some of the things you do as a leader to help prepare your staff for the things that they are dealing with on a daily basis? Well, the two, you know, the, the things I think about are one, how do we prepare people new to the agency to do the work? So making sure that we have an adequate orientation and that we are looking at um, the needs of our different departments in terms of training and supporting each other and how can, you know, staff who have been here longer provide a mentoring experience to other staff. And so we've been doing a lot of work on that over the last couple of years, just kind of improving that process. But we still hear from staff, even after they go through this long orientation of, you know, two or three weeks and hours and hours of training and coaching and mentoring, and people still, you know, feel nervous about the work. And, and so the other piece is to make sure that you have ongoing support for people and ongoing training. And sometimes you need to train on things every year and, and it may be a similar topic, but you're getting something new out of it every time. Um, so I think that, you know, that's what I think about. How am I supporting my staff to participate in the training that they need? How are we delivering training? How are we working with our partners? Um, you know, in December, we had the Trauma-Informed Healing, Trauma Healing Center come and do a training for our staff. And um, they're experts in this, in this field, you know? So it's important, I think, to bring the experts in sometimes too. So that, that's kind of what I think about. Just are we creating an environment that is, you know, um, a learning environment where we all acknowledge that we have things to work on. We have ways we can grow. Sometimes we have tough days and we have an interaction with the client or with each other that, that isn't the way we want it to be. And we can acknowledge that, we can apologize, we can move on, we can improve. Um, I think that that is, you know, a, that is a, a real part of our values of adaptability and innovation and non-judgment that we, We'll support each other that way um, to be a, a growth environment for people. I want to repeat some of the things you said. <clears throat> How you prepare new people, the best practices around orientation for the work that's ahead. The ongoing support and training that's definitely required. Types of training. How that training is being delivered. Being willing to bring in the experts to maintain a learning environment at all times within the organization and ensure that everyone's remaining adaptable as well as innovative in their approach to the daily struggles that obviously come to us all in our working relationships mm -hmm. and our relationships with your clients. Yeah. Now, Renee, this is really impactful because not every leader of an organization has to deal with this type of very serious, we're talking potentially biohazards, mm -hmm. types of uh, medical conditions that scare the most of us that are uninformed. How, what's the other part of that training like regarding, well, don't, if I touch somebody with AIDS, aren't, am I not gonna get sick? How do you address the misnomers, misnomers and or the misinformation? Mm -hmm. Well, we, part of our orientation is that every staff person and every board member and every volunteer has to go through a level one and a level two training. Those trainings cover, level one in particular, uh, covers HIV 101, which is kind of where we talk about transmission and risk and the myths around HIV. Um, so we can just kind of dispel those misconceptions right from the beginning. But then, you know, I think there's that risk and that and that's easy to dispel with the science. 
But then um, there are other risks that we have to deal with. So we, you know, we are collecting, as you said, over a million syringes a year, over a million syringes on the street, you know, in community partner organizations. Uh, there's a lot to think about there in terms of risk and safety of our staff and our participants. So that this year, actually in the, in the last year, um, our prevention program had one of their quality improvement projects was to review all of those processes. So how are we collecting sharps? How are we disposing of them? How are we training staff? And they had a, you know, a huge project that they did and um, really giving them the space to do that and supporting them in doing that and, and, and really require that that's going to be a part of what we do, you know, really adaptability and innovation. We really are going to do it all the time. And that means looking at how we do things and how we can do them better and be safer. Um, so there's a lot of risk there. There's also, you know, there's an emotional risk to the work too for people. And um, we are dealing with folks, you know, working with folks sometimes who have mental health and addiction issues. They may be living with HIV and feeling not well. Uh, they may be unhoused and feeling not well. They may be the victim, you know, they may have experienced stigma, discrimination in their life loss. I mean, people that come to HIV Alliance for Service, they're bringing a lot with them. And that means sometimes, you know, um, the work is difficult. Sometimes people are escalated or upset, frustrated, and they let that out at HIV Alliance because, you know, in some ways we're a safe place to do that. But uh, that is very difficult for staff too. And uh, people have to take care of themselves to do this work. So, you know, part of that risk is really, um, really acknowledging that and creating that kind of self-care environment and and as hard as it is for some of us like myself but to to really um be an example of that you know taking your breaks taking your vacation not working on the weekend just um all those things that are so hard to do but so important and i think when you do them you you feel so much more capable <laughs> of, of tackling the challenges that that we face so before I get to my question, I want to just make a statement to agree with you, Renee, that as leaders, we have to take our time, our time off. We have to rest. We have to care for our health. We have to care for the things uh, or do the things that bring us restorative uh, health. Mm. Now, you said staff, board and volunteers go through level one, level two required mm. training. And I think it's important that other leaders or aspiring leaders, organizations that are struggling with maybe, for lack of a better word, performance and or comprehension of its role, I think that the leadership, uh, the levels of training, the required training is really crucial to making sure that the organization is going the same direction. In the required training, you've made no differentiation between staff, volunteer, mm -hmm. and board member. Mm -hmm. Terminology, culture, perspective, paradigm, clearly communicated, creating the common culture, and ensuring that everyone is correctly informed on the role and the mission and the function of the HIV Alliance. Now, in the developing of level one and level two training, which I've been through, and it is a lot, <laughs> but it also reflects the complexity of the issues that the organization faces. How did you, as a leader, now maintain that ongoing, as you said, adaptability and innovation? It's all the time. 
Mm-hmm. How do you continually adjust for other leaders that were here this thinking, man, I got some problems either, either with staff, clients, whatever. I don't know how to fix this. How do you maintain innovation and adaptability in your training to keep it current and effective? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for as far as training goes, you really have to just review it all the time and seek input. So, you know, one of the things we did um, two years ago, we had some input on our training from um a community member who's part of the trans community who went through the training and didn't feel like it was comprehensive enough. So we um, collected some feedback from the trans community. We had a focus group. We had a couple of folks volunteer to help us um, from that focus group. And we worked on the training and improved the training. And um, it's a process and a negotiation with the staff and with the community members. But um, but that's what, what, what you need to do when it comes to training, really just reviewing it and getting outside input to make sure that you're staying current and that you're you're um, really addressing the topics that need to be addressed. So some for HIV Alliance, some of it is our history. So we want to keep this piece about where did HIV come from? Where have, have we been and where are we going? But also as HIV changes and impacts communities differently, we have to do do things to improve the training. I think generally you know, it can be exhausting to, <laughs> to feel like you constantly are looking at things in terms of how they can be improved. And you can easily exhaust your staff with that too. And that's something I have to watch myself for because um, I tend to think of things that way, like, oh, that's great, but what can we do to make it better? Um, and so I, I do have to watch for that. But I think, you know, having, you know, we have quality improvement committees, those committees can help a program prioritize what's important, what's rising to the top. And and you prioritize that by looking at its impact on your clients, its impact on your mission, the data, um, and seeking input from your advisory groups, your community advisory groups, um, and then prioritizing and being able to focus on something. There's lots of things that you could improve, but what's the most important to do this year? Um, And knowing that it's always a work in progress and, and that that there's time ahead to improve the other things. But um, yeah, I do think you have to watch out for that sort of um, fatigue for yourself and your staff of just um, constant improvement. But it is important because, I mean, we owe that to our clients. And that's, you know, kind of what I tell staff is, you know, again, this is back to the folks that we serve in our mission. And we want to, we want to end HIV. We're only going to do that if people living with HIV are healthy and well, and we don't have any new infections. So until we get there, it's gotta be a process of improving and adapting, so. I like that, the quality improvement committees. First of all, everything's a process and um, negotiations with people that are affected by it. By having the quality improvement committee, you're able to prioritize, which allows you to focus. And it's always a work in progress. But there is time ahead in the future to fix things. You don't have to do it all at once. And I think really one of the most uh, fatigue, it's real. Yeah. (laughs) And you can't be pushing so hard, so fast as a leader, leading your organization to the point where your people are fatigued all the time because there's never a period, well, we've arrived to a certain place. Let's enjoy this place for now. Let's get some successes, let's build up some momentum, and then we'll move forward in the next thing that we need to confront. Mm -hmm. And I think for leadership, that's really important. 
and that you don't push so hard all the time that you never arrive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you exhaust people or burn them out. And I mean, as a leader, I feel like you do sometimes have to ask people to do hard things, to push a little harder, to go a little farther. Um, and so trying to find that balance is important, you know, and, and I think it like this is a personal project for me. It starts with yourself, you know, so finding that balance for yourself is difficult. And then um, and then modeling that for others and 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 trying to, you know, as a leader, I want to take every opportunity for us to achieve our mission, you know, and I'm ambitious about that for our clients. I want I want that. I would love to see the day when we could report that there were no new HIV infections in Lane County or everyone living with HIV has suppressed viral load, meaning they're healthy, they're well, you know, that I want that for the people that we serve. But you have to also take care of each other if you want to do that work together. And uh, and that means, you know, finding priorities sometimes and, and letting things go other times. So. So for those, this is a series in Women in Leadership. For those that are seeing you for the first time and hearing about the HIV Alliance in Eugene, Oregon for the first time, just get, let me ask you a couple of statistical questions. How many employees are at the HIV Alliance? Well, it's a growing number, but we're, we're right around 90 employees right now. And how many departments? Um, well, we generally, we have the finance and admin, we have prevention, um, we have education, we have care, we have development, and then within those, there's lots of programs. So five uh, points of the umbrella, so to speak. Yes, yes. Uh, so the 90 employees function somewhere underneath that. Yes, and we have um, five offices throughout the region. So. Thank you. I was getting to that too. So <laughs> and what is your annual budget? Just around six million. Now, how do you recruit board members? What do you look for? This is important because leaders like you, whether it's you're looking for people that can bring other leaders mm -hmm. to the table to help you facilitate the work. What does someone like you, this leader that's managing 90 employees, five departments, five offices in five different counties, $6 million budget, what kind of leaders do you look for as a leader to help you facilitate the role and the mission of the HIV mm -hmm. Alliance? Well, I'm, I'm looking for leaders, you know, both, I guess, in management and in, in uh, the directors, uh, board directors. I'm looking for folks who obviously believe in what we do, have a passion for what we do, um, and are willing to advocate for us and speak out on our behalf and help us connect to others um, who bring a diverse perspective to the organization. So, you know, it's important to me that we have a diversity on the board that is, you know, not just gender or race and ethnicity or LGBTQ, all those things, and also geographic um, because we serve so many counties and I want to hear the perspective of, of those communities. So, um, I think all of those things are important. I mean, it's always great to have specific skills, you know, um, people who are facilitators or attorneys or those kinds of things. But I think um, being willing to work on behalf of the organization, having nonprofit experience is fantastic. Business experience is great. But I also think it takes a lot of different uh, perspectives and types of experience to make a good board. And um, that's something I really enjoy about our board that we, we do have uh, folks from lots of different backgrounds. So, um, yeah. 
Leadership development is such a critical piece of what we do on a daily basis. Now, from the time you started in 1999 as a volunteer, as you began to progress up the, the uh, chain, so to speak, or the ranks to the executive director, what an ascension you learned from the bottom up, building everything forward, learning the organization, its role, its function. What were you learning about yourself as a leader along the way as you were getting to certain points? Mm-hmm. Well, you learn a lot about what intimidates you and what, <laughs> what, what, uh, where you need to um, improve and expand and grow yourself. So I think that's been a lot of my process is just when something intimidates me as a leader to, um, you know, take a step back, take a deep breath, look at the resources I have on my board who can help me on my staff, and then um, to try to tackle it. And, and again, I, I, what motivates me to do that is, you know, to be a better leader and a better person for our clients, you know, um, so that, that, and I had a great, the, the executive director that was, when I started at HIV Lance, there was no executive director, actually. They were in between executive directors. So it was a little wild west over there. Um, but they were managing and they had a, you know, a group of dedicated, passionate people were making it happen. And the board was doing a ton of work. And then they brought on um, Diane Lang, who was our executive director for many years, who I think was executive director when you first came to HIV Lance. And um, Diane uh, came to... Uh, HIV Alliance, I think it was her first executive director role, but she embraced it wholly. And and in, in the way that Diane did everything, she basically learned all the ins and outs of nonprofit management and governance. And by the time I, you know, really got to know her, which was a couple of years after she started, um, when I became the program director and we started working together more closely, I was able to learn a lot from Diane. Um, and I was very lucky to have such an incredible, you know, mentor, uh, and I think, you know, she asked a lot of you. And again, you learned about what intimidated you, but she also um, created that environment and, you know, embodied that environment. I'm like, we're going to, we're going to grow and learn because that's what the mission demands of us. Um, and, uh, and a very professional, uh, you know, um, face for HIV Alliance. And I think really brought us you know, really created that foundation for us that allowed us to grow in the way we've grown since, you know, since I, since she's been gone and even before she was there, when she was there, but um, it really was a credit to her and the board at that time for doing that. Who do you look to as you've developed over the years, your history, your past, uh, uh, in regards to your education, your development, who are some of the leaders that may not be just HIV Alliance, but maybe you've read about that have inspired you some role models? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, there are a lot of people who are local local leaders that I look to. So, you know, our board of advisors, our board of directors, there's so many incredible people and inspiring individuals um, um, there, you know. And I think, you know, on a national level, I look at you know, I, I tend to be a political person. I follow politics, you know, and so I, I look at the political leaders that we have who are women who um, have really uh, stepped up and um, and really, you know, brought a new perspective to, 
to politics and to the national discussion. And so, you know, there's lots of those, lots of those folks that I look to as, you know, kind of an inspiration. Um, Now, let's talk a little bit. I've recommended your board of, your construct. You have board of directors, board of advisors, and I really like how that supports the mission, supports the leadership, supports the role of the HIV Alliance. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about that structure to several other boards that I'm on, potentially when board members go off, the idea of creating a board of advisors. How does that help you as executive director? How does that help the board? Uh, your board of directors, how does it help the organization continue to be successful? Yeah, that that's a great question. So, you know, thinking of someone who has been an inspiration to me locally, Diane Hazen, who was our board president, um, is is was really the force behind the board of advisors. And so she helped me design and, and launch the board of advisors. And so we the board of advisors is made up of you know community members who um, are committed to our mission, who are you know advisory to myself or the board, and then also past board members. So you know when someone gives six years, which is how much time you can give to the HIV Alliance board, you learn a lot about what we do, and um, and what was happening was you know after six years, people just left, and you do your best to try to keep in, keep track of people and keep in touch and keep people engaged, but there wasn't really any formal way for people to stay connected to us, and and to work as a group. You know, so I could meet with people individually, but what I was missing was you know, when you get that group of people together and they know HIV Alliance, they know the ins and outs of you or your organization and the community, you can get a lot of good ideas. Um, and that's the benefit of a board of directors, you know? So the advisory board plays that role for us. And um, while I still meet with advisory members individually, sometimes if we have projects we're working on together, but getting them all together, we only get together twice a year, but, um, it is, a, it is an incredible way to update them, keep them engaged, but also hear about opportunities, ideas. We, you know, we, we bring things to them, like here's a challenge we have, what do you think? <laughs> and, um, and they'll work on it, you know? So I, I think it's a great value to me personally as a leader, it's been um, a huge value. And I, and I think it's valuable to the whole organization and I hope it will be valuable to the person who comes after me in this role. Having that, not losing that expertise, not losing the organizational knowledge, not losing that community influence, it's really critical. And this idea of advisory committee, uh, it so intrigues me that the vision of that and the purpose of that and other people, other organizations could have such a uh, sub-organization and still maintain that con connectivity. I remember when we got back from Texas, I started getting, I got a couple of cards in the mail that I used to be on the board to have an open house. I'm not even sure how people got my address, but that reignited my, the work of the HIV Alliance for me personally. And I wanted to get reinvolved and I wanted to get reengaged because I believe in the mission. I have the passion for the mission. And so I'm, I'm saying that to say, to, to those that will hear it and other aspiring leaders, that it does work. Maintaining contact, maintaining communication, offering that open door, because I came to you, did I not? You did. <laughs> you did, yeah. I, I remember getting those cards and thinking, okay, I really want to do this right now. It's not the right time. 
but a couple of years later, everything just fell into place. And I came to you and said, I used to be on the board. I don't know if you remembered me or not, <laughs> but I was serious about getting re-engaged in my service and my commitment to, yeah. uh, to the organization and the clients that they served. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a great thing to have. I mean, it's, it has been great hearing from you how things were back then too, from the board perspective, because that's a perspective that I would never have. And I was, you know, a program director at the time, so I didn't interact a lot with the board. So that's been very helpful to have someone come back and say, well, this is how the board, you know, did things back then and see how we've changed or stayed the same. Um, but the board of advisors has, you know, the only thing, the thing about the board of advisors is, uh, you know, I hope that I'll have more time for it, be able to grow that, you know, what they do together, even more so that, you know, maybe they will have their own projects that they work on um, and uh, as a group, you know, and I think it takes time though, as, as a leader to, to do that. If you want to have a real meaningful group, you have to give it the time um, that it needs to keep, to keep it going, you know, to keep everyone engaged and, and provide them with the, the connection to the organization that they need to be, to be effective. But um, but it's been great, and I and I love getting them together and 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 having access to all those people. Like I said, as a leader, there's always I'm faced with things, you know, every day that I think like I don't know, I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. Um, and I have people on my board and on that advisory now too, who I can go to and say, what do you know about this, or what do you think about this, or who could help me with this, and um, and that's been incredible. So. Yeah, I'd like to just compliment you on that, Renee, as a board member. One of the things that I appreciate about you is that you you have that approach towards problem solving. You're like, well, there's got to be someone here that can help me figure this out. You do what you're doing right now. You smile, you laugh. You're like, okay, we're going to do this. I never see a, uh, an, oh, no, what are we going to do now mindset from you. I'm not saying you don't ever feel that way, but when you're in front of us, it's always very proactive. We can find a way. We have people that working with that are working with us. We have community resources. We can navigate our way through this. Mm -hmm. Now, that is so important as a leader. That's so important for a leader managing 90 employees, five departments, five offices in five counties, serving over 20 counties, a $6 million budget. That is a critical uh, mindset towards problem solving. Can you talk a little bit more about for the other leaders that are out there, for the other leaders that are navigating through a pandemic, struggling, some of your best practices towards problem solving? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for me, it's about really uh, using the resources that you have and um, and thinking expansively about that, you know, so when I'm faced with a problem, um, you know, I go to my management team, I sometimes I go talk, chat with staff about, you know, how things are going, what, what do they think about this problem, talking to community members, I think, you know, problem solving to me is, is, it's really important to have that, you know, um, input when you're solving a problem and not tr to feel like, you have to have the answer to everything, which it's, it is easy to feel that way. And sometimes people, you think people expect that of you, maybe they do, but it's not reasonable. Um, you know, I can't have the answer to everything. And, the, and if I did, it wouldn't be a very good answer because I'm only one person, you know? So, um, so knowing that you have to, 
you have to depend on on the rest of the team and that team includes the board and and really you're a community-based organization so that includes the community i mean we're here because the community wants us to be here and supports us and all of those people who give to your organization all of those people who share your facebook posts all those people that join your board and volunteer they want to help that's why they do those things so um and they often i i think people when i ask for help they feel um, you know, like honored that I asked them like, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you what I think. So um, I think that, you know, that for me is a best practice when it comes to problem solving. I also like personally, I have to, you know, I have to um, really kind of understand the the problem, but not let that that need to understand every piece of everything get in my way of moving forward. So um, sometimes I'll get caught up in that. Well, now explain this to me and explain that to me. And I need to know every little piece of it. And really, I know enough and I just need to move, you know, we need to move forward and, and start thinking about what we can do about about that. Um, I think also, you know, having just good practices around keeping track of decisions. There are a lot of decisions happening at HIV Alliance and we're solving problems all the time and um, keeping track of what those things are is important. And then following up on them, you know, that we we decide about a path and then go back and check and see how did it go? Did it solve the problem or did you just move on to something else? Um, so those are you know, some of the best practices that I use. Now regarding conflict or miscommunication, this is a sensitive topic, HIV, mm -hmm. HIV Alliance potentially. When you go into a new community and you're trained, when you're offering support and you, you do have resistance. You do have people that don't want the organization there, that does not want the services of the organization there. With regards to development, for those that are listening, how do you, how does the organization, how do you, your people, your, your employees, excuse me, address or train to address some of the concerns that they're confronted mm -hmm. with? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I talk to employees about this, about being an ambassador for HIV Alliance, I always talk to them about this fact. There are going to be people out there who um, disagree with parts of what we do, maybe all of what we do, but but mostly it's parts of what we do. Um, and and I expect, you know, and I and I counsel them to approach those folks like we would anyone um, with respect and without judgment. Now there's some things that people will say and do that I will just say that I'm not gonna subject my staff to that if you're gonna speak that way or treat us, you know, talk that way. So there's some things that we just, you know, those are things you have to um, just put aside and move and stay focused on what you can accomplish. But a lot of what we encounter in terms of resistance is, you know, an opportunity really. And if you can approach it from that perspective and just honestly and genuinely share what we do and why, and the data and the science are there, you know, um, and we can share that with people. There are lots of reasons to support what we do, whether it's from a compassionate perspective um, or uh, dollars and cents, you know, because it's cost effective to do it. And, you know, I, and I encourage staff to share that with people and hear what the concerns are and, and try to have genuine conversations about that um and find a common common ground to work on and um, that has served us well i think lots of times you know it isn't that we can say that we would agree with everything that every organization we partner with does um that uh, you know that's not possible every organization has their own focus and, and emphasis 
but if we can find a common ground to work on and and they're doing no harm i mean we're not going to work with organizations who are doing harm obviously but um but but i i think that's been you know that's kind of that's how i counsel staff to 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 deal with that from a development perspective and um and that's been fruitful for us in lots of ways you know lots of partnerships that we've developed through sometimes um sometimes difficult conversations, sometimes painful conversations, um, but, but fruitful in most cases. Because you deal with local health officials and that doesn't necessarily mean just county employees, that's hospitals, mm -hmm. law enforcement, clergy, elected officials, civic groups, educational leaders, that's a huge amount of coordination of conversation that mm -hmm. has to be had. And there is a legitimate skill with that. Mm -hmm. There is a le legitimate duty and responsibility to be well-prepared, mm -hmm. well-informed, and having the desire to stay in the conversation until at a minimum facts can be produced as opposed to hyperbole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think um, there is a skill there and um, it's communication skill, but also, like you said, I mean, I, I expect my staff to be prepared to, um, you know, attend meetings and be participatory and engage and be honest and um, not engage in the, you know, um, hyperbole uh, and really, and not, and not um, you know, share information that we don't know to be from a good source or to be valid or to be true. And um, I think all those things are important. I think that's part of our reputation in these communities is that we're professional and we're focused on those we serve and the best for the community and that we're um, engaged and we're willing to help um, and we're accountable. I mean, I think those things are important. And, you know, someone said something to me from a rural community recently, we were talking about expanding syringe exchange to one of the communities in their county. And they said, um, you know, one thing, and I and they said, I think HIV Alliance, HIV Alliance knows this, but I just want to say that lots of people promise things to rural communities um, or they come, you know, offering help that they, they don't follow up on. And um, that's really damaging. So please don't offer it if you can't do it. And I think that's important for us too, because we want to do so much. Our staff are are so passionate about what we do, but um, but letting your community partners down or overextending yourself and not doing a good job is also a risk and damaging to the relationships too. So, I think that's really important with the influence, especially in the realm of leadership. Um, we hear that we've heard the phrase under promise and over deliver, that's not really sufficient for this kind of conversations. Uh, being intentional mm -hmm. and being specific. And how do you, how do you personally, your leadership team and your organization handle misinformation around the areas that you serve? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think when there's information that we can, misinformation that we can correct, we will, we will try to do that. But there is, you know, I don't know if you're talking about in a social media context, but sometimes there is a level of misinformation or um, comments that we choose not to even respond to. Um, 
And those are, you know, it's very rare. I mean, if we see an opportunity to dispel a myth around HIV or share accurate information, we'll do it. And, and I think that's, um, you know, that's important for us because of who we are and what we do. And, and just, it, it's important generally, but, um, but yeah, so I, I think we, we approach it um, with an open mind. So, you know, and, and um, with a, you know, unless we know to be different, a, a expectation that people will hear us and that the person wants to have accurate information. So, you know, not at attaching, um, you know, blame to misinformation until we know it to be intentionally being misused uh, and really just trying to approach it that way and try to provide the accurate information to people as much as we can. Um, yeah. So when you come into communities and you have to deal with someone who is misinformed or overly charged for maybe culturally, whatever the case might be, being prepared to facilitate that kind of conversation is very critical. And that's what I'm trying to get to here in this piece of what the HIV Alliance does, because you have employees all over the place that are out there interacting with all kinds of people. They have to be prepared. Yeah. And they have to stay in those difficult conversations. They have to be factual. They have to be concise. And they have to be prepared to not only engage, but be engaged. Mm -hmm. And so as a leader of such an organization in so many counties, what are some of the things you do as executive director to ensure that those that are ambassadors, as you say, I really like that the description of that, to make sure that they are ready to engage in the areas that they are being sent to? Well, I think making sure that they understand. So part of the orientation for a new employee is for them to understand the organization. And then throughout their time with us, we make sure that they get regular updates and information from, from the leadership about what's happening, where we're going, what our vision is, what the strategic plan is. You know, We have program plans that measure our goals and outcomes and everyone is oriented to those things. So you know, making sure that they have the information they need to share and then making sure that they know that, that we're backing them up and when they can call on us. Because sometimes, um, sometimes it's so personal for a staff person what, what, the, what the other person is saying or engaging in that it might be better to have someone else in the organization talk to them. Um, and that happens quite a bit, you know, so sometimes it's me or someone else that, that does that, that follow up with someone. But I think it's really just important for them to, you know, know that they can, they don't have to engage if it's hurtful or dangerous or, uh, you know, um, that in that way, you know, that people are treating them badly, that they're not expected to put up with that. But when there's an opportunity to provide them with the information that they need to share it, and to you know, kind of model and mentor how we're going to do that for them, you know. So how do you share information? And sometimes that means you know we go to meetings together, or they go to a meeting with the manager, and they can see how someone else might share the information so that they can then represent us um, later on. So it's collaborative, I think. You know how you do that and how you uh, sort of mentor and coach people to do that. But it starts with having good information accessible to everyone and transparency about what we're doing and why we're doing it. You don't want your staff person to be in a position where someone asks, why are you coming here with syringe exchange? And they're like, I don't know, because my boss told me to do this. You know, that's not what you want. That doesn't build trust. So um, I think it's, you know, good information, transparency, and then that coaching and mentoring and support that people need. We got just a couple of minutes left, Renee. What are some of the things you that are important in leadership 
that you would like to just to communicate to those that were here this especially for young women that are becoming professionals engaging in the workforce getting out of college maybe about volunteering or passions things of that nature mm -hmm. um i think for me the you know the important thing is to find something that you're passionate about to to build a team around you know, to have a team around you that is um, a trusted team that and and by trusted I mean you trust them to question you and um, and bring new ways of thinking to you and new ideas to you and really embracing that um, as a leader so that you can be a better leader. Uh, but I also I'm a mom and I have you know I have children I have a family and that's really important to me and um, finding that balance you know going back to self care and taking and taking care of yourself and taking that trauma informed approach to being a leader even um, uh, I think is really important because you know you have to set the example for others but also you'll do a better job if you give yourself a break and um, and then the last piece I would say is finding people, not maybe not on your board, but um, in the community who you trust and who you appreciate and who can be a mentor for you. I think that like having that relationship with someone where you can just go and tell them that you are honestly frustrated with your board for doing this thing or, or your staff for doing this thing, that's important. Um, and even if the frustration is, you know, um, is, is not, um, you know, you, you maybe you don't need to be frustrated. You need to work through it, though. Having that person to work through that with, I think, is really important and has always been important to me. And that person has to be someone that you trust who um, there isn't that power dynamic with. So, you know, this is like a non-board member, not someone you supervise, but just a trusted mentor in the community. That is one of the reoccurring themes, Renee, that's coming out from this Women in Leadership uh, series is have a mentor. Mm -hmm. No matter what, have someone that can walk with you and help you and lead you and guide you in your blind spots and in your vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Renee Yandel. She's the Executive Director of the HIV Alliance in Eugene, Oregon, here in Lane County. Renee, thank you for your participation with Molina Leadership Solutions in this year-long series, uh, Women in Leadership. Thank you for your example, your devotion, your commitment uh, to those that are struggling and, and living with HIV AIDS, struggling with opioid addiction and all the other areas of service that you participate in as an organization. Thank you for being a great example to me personally and someone that I wholeheartedly respect, admire and follow as, a, as another community leader. We're looking forward to many great uh, days ahead of the organization and, and uh, under your leadership and your guidance. And we look forward to following up with you in, in the in post after this year and see how things are going. Thank you, Mark. It's been so much fun. I always enjoy chatting with you. Very good. Have a good day and we'll see you soon. You too. Okay, bye.